Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. You do have an outline in your notebook, and I will attempt to make a few comments under each heading. But before I just take off and start making a bunch of comments and you all start taking notes and just sit there and tune in another lecture style all the time, um, tell me, what, why would you come to a workshop on loneliness? You mean it? Yeah, sure. You're aware of a, a richer relationship with the Lord, but it hasn't it hasn't filled a particular hole that's been left. Anybody want to teach this workshop? important sentence, a part of it that's always going to be there. Huh. Why, why is it the case that as you chat with friends, counselees, or with a person in the mirror looking at you, why is it the case that, that loneliness does seem to be, I certainly agree with you, it does seem to be a bit of a bottom line kind of a thing? Why, why is that the case? Why, why would it be the case that everybody in the room who's not living on the basis of denial um, would be able to acknowledge some measure, and in some cases some very significant measures of loneliness? Why is that the case? Um, let me talk with you a bit about that. Are you suggesting that God has somehow made it happen so that we're always turning to Him and that He could somehow take it away if He so chose? Or is there something in the very makeup of things? Yeah. Given the reality of who we are as persons, given the reality we live after Adam took a bite and before the Lord comes back, we're living in between those two rather crucial events, that loneliness is somehow inevitable in the very, in the very nature of things. Yeah. Because you, 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 don't, you don't want to put it, and you weren't meaning this, but it could be heard from what you said. You didn't mean to say it. But it could be heard from what you said that God... Um, God could kind of take it away, but he doesn't want to. And that maybe isn't quite the case, is it? Other reasons why you come to a seminar on loneliness, Tom?
If you look at your outline in your notebook, let's look at the bottom of that first page. The function of loneliness. A bad function and a good function. And Tom just talked about the bad function. There's a protective function to loneliness that it does preserve us from a certain kind of uh, future disappointment. Loneliness can function. Interesting thought. Other reasons why you've come to a seminar on loneliness. Yeah. among adolescents among adolescents still living at home isn't that interesting can you recall the essential gist of his message I'm not asking to repeat his sermon but what would a lonely person have, have heard that would grip them in the course of the, his response. I didn't hear it, so I'm asking a very open question. Is that fair? Oh, okay. But you do know that, that he talked about that and that produced a response. And it's not surprising, I guess, when you think about it, that when you talk about the reality of what's happening in people's lives, and that's a reality, people are going to hear. People are going to listen. Something's going to respond inside when you talk about loneliness. Do you know people that would be, um, if they were sitting here now, maybe some of you who I'm thinking of are sitting here now, but you know people who, if they were sitting here now, hearing the last five minutes, would basically be saying, what are they talking about? What's this loneliness stuff? She cried reading a book about feeling lonely? You know, all right, so he's divorced. I mean, get on with the life with the Lord. What's all this nonsense about holes in your system or something? You know people like that? What are they like? Cold. Cold. Busy. Lonely. <laughs> And denying of it. Do they often occupy positions of leadership? Why would that be the case? Yeah. Yeah. And those who holler the most about don't get into all this psychological garbage are the ones, it seems to me, who are denying it most in themselves. I think it's sad. Tell me, I don't want this to be a, a negative um, sentence here. Um, how can I say it non-negatively? I'll just say it. Tell me, um, tell me where you've been ministered to in your loneliness. What, what, is, what does that mean to you? Uh, I would guess that most of us sitting in the room, and, and some have already said so, have acknowledged that that's just there's something core inside that's triggered by a reading about it in a book, or that's acknowledged as you just think about your own life. And one gentleman already said he feels like he's dying over it. Um, where, where have you been ministered to in your loneliness? What, is, what does that mean? I think that the only way I think that is that I've found in ministering to it is the 
out to other people, but that hasn't helped me deal with it myself. Yeah. I mean, that, that temporarily, temporarily it's a, a diversion, and it's a good diversion, and maybe somebody else is blessed by it, but I have to still come back to myself. Yeah. Make a clear distinction between where has where have you been ministered to in your loneliness versus where has your loneliness been resolved? Because the answer really is likely at some fundamental level, nowhere. If you ask me, am I a lonely person? I could very easily say no. Ask me to talk more and at a different level, I could say yes. At some levels, I'm not a bit lonely. I really have a number of, of friends that I regard as very, very close. I have a lot of people that I just plain enjoy being with, doing things with. I'm a fairly active guy and run around do a bunch of stuff and I have a good time, you know. And I don't I don't spend my days gripped by some terrible pain of loneliness. I really don't. Some of you do. Doesn't mean I'm more spiritual than you. It may mean that I have a different relational structure than you. Um, but I don't spend my days just feeling miserable from being lonely. On the whole, I'm relatively happy, you know. And um wife and I are together, I don't feel lonely with her. Dan and I, you know, my wife left on um what day did she leave? Wednesday, yeah. What's her name? <laughs> she left Wednesday, and uh, we were in a in a 301 up in the castle. And um, when she left, I moved down into the room with Dan, so I've traded a wife for a buddy. And um, you know, there's a few differences here and there, but um, <laughs> but I'm you know, Dan and I last night sat up and chatted, and Wes came in, and we chatted till about 12:30, and I didn't feel lonely. I felt rich. It was nice. And you all can think like that. You can tell stories like that, of course. And yet there's still something underneath, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where have you been ministered to? We've already heard that some ways that you've been able to... And you, uh, where, what's, the, what's the book that was out a number of years ago? Lonely... No, Crowded Pews and Lonely Hearts? or What was that? Remember that book? Crowded Pews and Lonely People. I think that's what it was called. And uh, really a good book. I forget the author of the book. A woman wrote the book and it's... Um, uh, my wife read it first and gave it to me, and it was an excellent book. And one of the major points she made in the book is a book that is a standard point, and I don't think we ought to um, reject it as as uh, as trite because it's true. You know, if if you're lonely, then you ought to be involved in making somebody else less lonely. You know, nothing's wrong with that, and that's what you said, and that's good. You know, lonely people can obviously just sit around and feel sorry for themselves, and what they ought to do is go out and touch other people's lives. Uh, that's obviously one thing that's right to do, and if you're not doing that, then you're wrong. Um, but doing that doesn't doesn't accomplish what way down deep you want accomplished. It accomplishes something good, and it does provi- provide some level of legitimate joy. But but there's still an ache, isn't there? So I don't want to just say the obvious, nor do I want to disregard the obvious good advice that lonely people ought to be involved in being nice to other people. I think that's just a super thing to do. But it doesn't quite deal with the issues where I want them dealt with. Okay, what do you mean? Well, it may be people, it may be a relationship, it may be growth. Something from my memory or my experience. But I'm finding my loneliness, and I'm lonely for different things. Hmm. Help me with that, for example. Okay. Uh, for instance, I lost my father just recently. But sometimes I find myself very lonely for that relationship that I don't want to be again. Yeah. And then sometimes I find myself. Yeah. And then sometimes the loneliness just, you know, 
of the Lord in me. Just, and that loneliness is, is, is something I crave because it's the loneliness where that I, the only loneliness where I really feel satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah, it sure does. We were in um, doing a seminar in Nashville, whenever that was. Anybody in our Nashville seminar? Yeah, September, was it? Um, March, we did a two-part one, I guess, March and September. Um, and I remember we were driving from the church to the hotel or whatever, and we drove by a, um, I guess it was I guess it was March. We drove by a, 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 a grade school where they had a ball field uh, for that, where, where, where kids would, would, would play. As I drove by, I just had an incredible pang of loneliness. Because I used to take my kids to the ball game when they were six and seven or eight. I'm never going to do that again. They're never going to be six, seven, or eight again. Um, you know, now they're 15 and 17, and they take the, my older boy takes his own car to, to a soccer tournament. And, you know, we go and watch, and he doesn't even know we're there half the time. That's not entirely true. Um, but it's a little different now. And I just felt kind of a... Because it was just the two of you as opposed to others. Well, whether it's right or not, it sure is true. <laughs> and you know, that's a bit of an important point. Um, it's interesting how quickly we as Christians, and I think appropriately, ask the question, is it right? But I think we first ought to ask the question, what is, before we ask the question, what ought to be? Because if... If, if God is who he claims to be, he's dealing with the human condition as it exists. And therefore, our, our first question should be, as we look in the mirror, to say, well, what really is true? What is true is we do go to retreats where our families used to be, and that just feels overpoweringly empty. And whether you should feel that way or not really isn't, is, is, is the second question. The first question is, do you? Now, if the answer to that is yes, then we must bring that reality to the scriptures, or more particularly to our Lord, as made known in the scriptures, to see just what his perspective on that is. But don't make the mistake of, of saying, well, I guess I feel that way, but I probably shouldn't, so therefore I kind of don't. You know, we, we really do. The scriptures, you, you just must bring the, you must have integrity, you must bring the reality of what's true, expecting God to be able to deal with it. Dolores? Hmm. And um, I thought, and I, I felt inadequate at the time, and I thought, God's not going to be able to use me again. And I remember that night, going to my Bible, thinking, God, you've got to speak to me. I just, I don't think I can go on unless you do. I feel like nobody's here, and nobody cares. I'm totally alone. And I didn't even know where to go, because I was going to Psalms, I came to Psalm 142, it was almost like hmm. he wrote that song for me. Hmm. And that last verse where it said that, you know, he would um, uh, use me. Hmm. And it was just like, even though the loneliness was still there, it was all right because God, someone, understood. Hmm. Isn't that good? What are you going to feel as you hear her say that? Yeah, feel a little hope, you feel good. Why? Not just because she pointed out a, a verse in the scripture which has been meaningful to her. That's good. And I'm sure that is a source of encouragement to reflect on that particular psalm, which I think I read a couple nights ago. But what else? That, that I'm sure is there. What else, though, makes you has an impact on you? Yeah, isn't that nice? We as evangelicals, very properly, 
very properly argue not only for the inerrancy of Scripture, but and from my point of view, the inerrancy of God's propositional revelation. That we do have a book that's written in words, and God has controlled the words, and it's a, and there are truths that are written, and, and my faith is not rooted on my feelings, it's rooted on what God has said. Now, all that's true. And yet we should learn what it means to play in that truth. There's a subjective part of it. And uh, for now, my faith is rooted in that which God has declared to be true, and I believe the Bible's the foundation, and I must be spending time in his word. But the purpose of spending time in his word is, is not somehow just to get the truth down pat. It's to get the framework so that I can somehow enter into the truth. It's to enter into the Lord, or to put it more biblically, to let the Lord enter into me as his bride and to bear fruit as he enters me. The sexual imagery there is very intentional in the scripture. Look at your outline. Let's just make a few points in response to a lot of what you're saying. And I don't, I'm not shifting now into a lecture, so please don't um, expect just to sit and listen now. Talk about the necessity of loneliness in a fallen world. There's some obvious sentences here that have already been said. Let me just summarize them. It seems to me that um, one of the greatest means of coping among all people, and, and certainly Christians included, is the, is the coping method of denial. Remember Dan and I, a while back, were chatting and just talking about some people that were just pretending about some things, and, and he just said, man, I want to blast denial. Just with intensity, I want to blast denial. You know, I really concur with that. Because denial really keeps us from God. Whatever's true needs to be looked at. Look at it this way. Let me see if this overhead here works. Here's all of reality. Let those four X's simply symbolize all of reality. Your lonely feelings, the fact that you're 5'10 and weigh 170, the fact that you're in good health and bad health, the fact that you live in Nebraska, it's just whatever's true. Okay? That there is a God, that uh, he is coming back. Um, that Christ died on the cross, all of realities in those four X's, all right? Everything that's really true, internally in my heart, as well as externally, as well as in the heavens, whatever. That's the truth, okay? All of reality is there. When I talk about integrity, I talk about never having a system which requires you to deny any part of that. What I'm afraid happens is so often we get a certain theology... We, we develop a certain understanding of the Christian faith... That, that really doesn't encompass certain parts of reality. Typically, what part? Internal reality. So our theology kind of embraces this much. And then we work very hard at defending our theology and drawing our theology from the scriptures, which of course is the right thing to do. Um, but the theology that we come up with, all, com all coming up with through finite people who have limited understanding, nobody's a... Uh, an absolute theologian, you know. Um, but whatever theological system or framework or understanding we have, uh, more often than not, requires us to deny the part of reality which our theology can't handle. Oh, dear. Um, yeah, the, the, the theology that we have so often requires us to deny that part of reality which our theology cannot handle. You see? And then when that takes place, what happens to our theology? We become more dogmatic about it and push it harder. And the strength of our dogmatism is related to our efforts to deny. We have simply have to believe that it's true. We get noisy about believing that it's true. 
And what comes out is not conviction, but dogmatism. And there's a real difference. And I would suggest that it's a very right thing to do to, number one, make it our absolute priority to see to it that our, that, that our theology comes from the scriptures and not from human experience. I want to argue for that very strongly. Don't hear me compromise that. But hear me argue that if, in fact, our theology is coming from the Bible, it can handle all of reality. And therefore, if we have something happening in our lives, like our loneliness, which we can find no biblical perspective on that somehow gets us through with hope and joy, then the thing to do in so many minds is to pretend that isn't the case. To pretend that the internal reality simply isn't there, to somehow deny that. And then we go to churches so often where, where the theology is, is being presented um, by, by people who are not dealing with reality in their own lives. And so in order to become good Christians in this local church, we have to deny even more. That's not good. I mean, that's real bad, seems to me. And I would suggest that what we need to be doing is as we go to our understanding of the Scripture, I need to be saying, Lord, I have every right to expect, knowing who you are, I have every right to expect that an accurate biblical understanding of you is going to be adequate to encompass all of me and all of reality generally. You know, we have a theology which most of us can handle Mexican earthquakes. Most of us can handle nuclear accidents in Russia. Most of us can handle some of these international tragedies. We, can, we have a theology which can handle the fact that relationships break up. But do we have a theology which can handle internal reality? And I would suggest what is usually excluded from, our, from the purview of our theology is internal reality. Do you see? Well, that's not a very good focus, is it? Most of our theology is able to handle most of what needs to be handled, but what most more often than not gets denied is internal reality. And then those who take responsibility for proclaiming theology, if in fact their theology cannot handle internal reality, they must live on the strength of denial and deny internal reality, which is the one thing their system can't handle, which is why so many folks in leadership have a theology which is insensitive to human need. Does that make sense? It seems to me that when we go to the scriptures, we must be going to the scriptures expecting that God has spoken to me. Now, I'm not a neo-orthodox person in my theology. And to use the term very simplistic, all I mean by that is I'm not one who believes that I should come to the text requiring the text to answer uh, primarily my questions right now. I should not come to the text requiring God to encounter me as I come to the text, and when he does, allowing that to be called authentic. I should come to the text as a, as a scholar, as a student. I don't mean scholar in the seminary sense, but as all of us can come to the text as scholars, as students, and saying not what does the text mean to me, but what does the text mean? You know, wonder what the language is here, and let me get to read a book and see if I can get some Greek scholar to help me out here and read a commentary and go listen to my pastor and, and figure out what the culture of the situation was and what did Paul mean when he said that uh, don't sacrifice meat or don't, you know, people that are eating uh, meat sacrificed to idols, what's the historical context so I can figure out the point of it. I should do all that without once asking what's the text mean to me. I think it's the right thing to do. But then as I develop my understanding of what Paul was saying in the text, and as I exegete 
drawing out the meaning of the text so I understand what Paul was trying to say to that audience in his language. That's exegesis. When I do that, I have a framework of understanding which then I have every right I think God is disappointed when I don't exercise it. I have every right, right to expect the text to speak to realities within me, including internal realities that nobody seems to be able to speak to very well. Do you have a theological perspective on loneliness? We have a right to expect that that's there. We must not deny loneliness. I would suggest that loneliness is an inevitable condition. For many of us, it's very happily relieved by a very fine relationship with a spouse or a very special friend, and that's good. But it doesn't take it away. Loneliness is necessary. It's the lot of all people, this side of glory, to some significant degree. Why? That's the effect of it. It creates thirst. I agree with that. It creates thirst. But why, why, why can we argue, if you agree, that we can argue that, that it is inevitable? Because we've chosen independence from God, all right? And because we've chosen independence from God, we have left the one who alone can satisfy, and until we're glorified, all we essentially get is a taste of that which has been restored in fact and will be restored fully in the eternal state. There's an excellent book that I've, I know I've mentioned at a seminar or two. You might have heard me uh, say it. I don't know how to, how to pronounce a guy's last name. Help me. Kibido? Kubido? Kubido has a book called... Um, oh, I forget the title. By What Authority? That's it. Kubido. Richard Kubido. K-U-E. And then a bunch of letters after that. Um has a book called By What Authority? And, and one of the essential points that he makes in there is that one of the great errors of, that he perceives in the evangelical world, and he's speaking as sort of a fringy guy, a little neo-evangelical maybe, um, one of the great errors that he, or great tendencies that he discerns in the evangelical world as he observes it today in America is, is somehow the promise of bringing the blessings of heaven into the present. And that does nothing but increase frustration and guilt. You hear See, heaven, there will be no loneliness. Every tear will be wiped away. Therefore, that means every reason for tear. God is not going to go right around the handkerchief and getting every tear as it comes. What he's, what he's saying is not he's going to wipe away the tears literally. He's going to remove the reason for the tear to come. And what is the essential reason for tears coming? Because we have longings that are unsatisfied. What do we long for fundamentally? Relationship, we're built for it. And to somehow require that the blessings of heaven be now is one of the great false promises made by so many that increases frustration. I've read this a time or two before. Let me read it again. When I was sitting at, a, at an Easter cantata a couple of years ago, just very moved by the the thought of the Lord's death, and particularly his resurrection. It was an Easter cantata talking about not just his death, but his resurrection, with the implication, of course, of his coming. And I just began to be moved about the thought of what that's going to be like. And um, in the middle of that cantata, I just pulled out a pencil and wrote this. And just let me just read this to you. The notion that I'm wanting to illustrate with this is that, is that loneliness is necessary before glory. Because, as I say in my outline, only God can 
fully relate, and now he only gives a glimpse of it. The full fact of it is in place, but the experienced reality of it is only glimpsed, not fully felt. We must not develop a theology which says that we can enter into all that heaven will, will, will later give. A very meaningful taste. We have a down payment of the Spirit. We haven't got all that God has for us. Yeah. That's sure my understanding. My understanding is that it's striking when the Lord says in Genesis 2.18 that uh, it's not good for man to be alone, that you ought to, the next verse ought to be, so we made Eve. But the next verse is, so we had Adam name the animals. doesn't seem to follow very well. But obviously it follows if it's inspired. And so what I think is happening is that God is saying that, uh, Adam, there's a part of you that's not been touched, and I want to surface that so I can satisfy it. Because we're told after the naming of the animals that the last phrase in Genesis 2, 20 or someplace, is that but for Adam there was not found a helper for him. Then God says, take a nap. Yeah. I have a brother who teaches at Columbia Bible College. He has his doctorate in psychology as well. And we've done a lot of interaction and uh, agree pretty well on the line. We have some different language systems, but we have a pretty, pretty similar understanding of things. And where I talk about, in my basic way of thinking, the full personal circle, Bill talks about what it means to be complete in Christ. That's in Colossians 1, is that right? Uh, that we're, we've, been, we've been made complete in Christ. And his argument, I think it's just different language system for the very same thing that I want to say. That we really have been, made, have been made complete in Christ, and that's a fact, that's a present reality, but it's not a fully experienced reality. And Bill's argument, and mine as well, and the biblical argument, is that we are to live on the basis of our completeness in Christ, but, but not doing that in a way which requires us to pretend that the completeness is fully experienced, but that the completeness is fully accomplished and will later be fully experienced. Let me just read this to you. I call it a glimpse, the notion that it's, our completeness has not been fully accomplished, but we get a glimpse of the completeness now and then. I think the glimpse is rare. And that's just an opinion. I can't give you a verse for that at all. Just an opinion. Somebody who's living. That's just my opinion from my life. You give me different opinions from your life. I think that there are m many moments in which I just feel good and just enjoy the Lord. And there's a lot, a lot of the times. But once in a while, I get an overwhelming glimpse of what it really is going to be. Here's what I wrote. Lord, life is a puzzle. Problems, temptations, worries, sin followed by repentance, followed by new sin, anguish over loss, relief when inevitable tragedy is delayed, moments of happiness, some long, others fleeting, happiness, deep for a minute, Shallow for an hour, then gone. Wherever I look, imperfection. Unsuccessful efforts to change. Smiles hiding frustration. Contentment for wrong reasons. Misguided security. Pressured obedience, which is supposed to bring joy, but only questions come. Lord, you came to give life. Not the poor imitation we know, but life. Meaning, purpose, joy, love, peace. And you give abundantly, life to the full. Lord, I possess your life. Why then is my life so different from yours? Give me a glimpse. There's more than what I see. My eyes are so full of the less that I have trouble seeing the more. But I have seen a glimpse. Sometimes music has opened my eyes to catch a glimpse of that transfigured life. Sometimes an embrace, a shared moment of intimacy, a word of love from a friend. Sometimes your spirit has enlivened a sermon and the clouds parted for a moment and I caught a glimpse. A glimpse of life. Life as your word defines it. And for a moment I'm weightless.
My deepest being is stirred. I soar above the dullness of pain and pointless pleasures of ordinary life. It seems that the windows of heaven itself are open and the riches of potential, opportunity, possibility, responsibility, privilege, and emotion pour over me an, almost overwhel an overwhelming, almost smothering flood. Only sobs or shouts could express the fullness that bursts from within. And I declare with unquestioning conviction, conviction that is undiluted and energizing, this is life, life as you live it. And then the glimpse is gone. Life continues. New problems, pressures, empty happenings, which make me anticipate tomorrow by asking, so what? More moments of an almost fulfilling happiness. More days of a sometimes paralyzing and chronic apathy. And I wonder which is real. What I live most of the time, or what I catch sight of at unpredictable intervals. Lord, another glimpse, please. This one longer, more enduring, less easily forgotten. Not an emotional trip. Not a special experience, but a glimpse of the eternal truth which stirs emotions and enriches experience. A glimpse, Lord, of life, your life. Life as you designed for man and then restored to man. Until that life is perfected in me and I enjoy its fullness with neither measure nor end, give me what I need to persevere, to hope, to believe. Lord, give me a glimpse. That's all he gives. But he requires me to go on anyhow. Did you know that Abraham went 22 years without a word from God? Leave the Bible every day to get some level of word. Maybe it isn't gripping us every day, but it's there. 22 years without, a, without God speaking. At least that's what the record seems to indicate. Maybe the other times the Lord talked and we aren't told about that in the scriptures. That's certainly a possibility. Only God can fully relate. He only gives a glimpse now. That's one reason why loneliness is inevitable. Second reason why loneliness is necessary in a fallen world. What do I need to resolve my loneliness? I need somebody to be there absolutely for me. Dolores was sharing that she went to two friends with a burden. And their response was pat and cliche-ish. And um, no, no rich sense of, what was my phrase last night, being poured into. Um, about six months ago I talked to a man, and I think I mentioned the story at a recent seminar where a fellow came to see me, a man in his middle 30s, who had been raised in a very, very strong Christian home where his father was a very uh, visible Christian leader whose name some of you would know if I were to say it. And he had major troubles in his marriage at one point, drove 10 hours to see his dad. Did I mention this here at the seminar? Atlanta, maybe I mentioned it. He, went, he drove 10 hours to see his dad. He told me this like several months ago, whenever. After a 10-hour drive in which he just was dying to talk to his dad. He was hurting. He just wanted his dad to be there and to give help and to give perspective on a marriage that was failing. He, he drove up in the driveway of his parents' home, and as he went to the door, it was locked, so he had to knock, and Mom came to the door and gave him a hug and said, Son, good to see you. Unexpected. I have to talk to Dad. I'm, I'm really in trouble. Well, she called her husband, and they went into the study and sat down, and Dad said, What's going on? My marriage is about to fail. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just lost. Dad's first question, the man told me, tell me about your devotional life. Is it regular? The man said, uh, no. I'm having a devotional life, but I do miss days now and then. He said, until your devotional life is consistent, I won't talk to you. And he got up and walked out. Isn't that horrible? Now, that's a rather blatant, horrible example of what it means to not be there. A whole lot of us have experienced that exact thing in less blatant form. That's blatant. We all kind of go, oh, man. But a lot of things, this is bad, but not visible. Where, where have you experienced somebody being there 
absolutely for you. Where have I experienced somebody being there absolutely for me? What's the answer to that question? When you really understand what I'm asking, the answer is never. Because, do you see, nobody's capable of doing that at their best. Do you see why that is theologically? That's not just my opinion, that's, that's good theology. Why is it true that nobody can be there fully for somebody else? In order for me to be there fully, to take all of my resources and to pour them entirely into you, I need to be an independent being. But I'm not. I'm dependent. I'm always drawing. Do you see? And until heaven, when I'm in perfect union with the Lord experientially, and all of his resources, his life is fully perfected in me, then I'll be able to be there fully, but not now. Not now. And I remember the first time that that really occurred to me with, with my father when I first began entering the disappointment with dad. I have a good dad. Don't hear me maligning him because I'm just not. Um, my kids say about me, I suppose, and they're honest if they will. But I remember calling dad up and, uh, in a time of a particular hurt, and he was there for me. But as we finished the conversation, his, his sentences just were not, um, uh, didn't, didn't go far, far enough. And, and my, my thought was when I hung up, I just felt, I wish he'd have just said that. Well, why didn't he say it? Because he didn't care? No. Let me put it bluntly. He isn't good enough. And he's real good. He's not loving enough, and he's real loving. He's not wise enough, and he's real wise. He's not enough. Because nobody can provide for me what my soul legitimately longs for, and because God gives me only in fact and in glimpses what I long for, therefore loneliness is a required experience a fallen man before the restoration and glory. I saw a hand up earlier. Was there a question? Yeah, I guess my question is uh, why the Lord can't be that? Why he can't do what? Why can't he's that independent person that when I come to him, he's not always there. And like you're saying, the glimpse. Yeah. And I guess my question is why? Why not more fully? There'll probably be a pretty long line to ask him that. Um, one of the most helpful books, not so much in terms of explaining it all, but helping me grasp the reality of it all that I've read, and I mentioned the book before, is the Hinds Feet and High Places book, where it talks about Much Afraid. And, um, and many times when she really believed she needed the gentle shepherd to appear, he didn't. But he did seem to appear at the right times, defined by her continuing on the journey. So the issue is, who's going to define the right times? Um, I did a sermon once um, that I called, uh, when, when, when God Withdraws. Um, because it seems like he's gone sometimes. Now, is he? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I have the hairs in your head numbered. I'm catching every tear in a bottle, putting it in a shelf. I'll tell you all about it later. I mean, obviously, he's, he's not withdrawn, but the experience of him is clearly that he's withdrawn many times. This is not the case. Can't you all recall, those of you with children, when they were real little, and um, they'd start, you know, when they brought them home from the hospital, they'd cry, and you'd go pick them up and, you know, nurse them and burp them and change them and put them back and hope they'd sleep. Um, but you can recall that at some point, you knew it was right for them to stay there and, and kind of cry it out. Isn't that right? I can recall first time our first son... Um, 
got to the point where it was very clear that um, it was time to let him sleep through the night or cry through the night, whichever he chose. Um, and that was my decision, and it wasn't my wife's. And I can, I can literally recall when he began to cry. We, my wife and I had talked about it and agreed it was time to kind of let him cry it out as opposed to kind of run in, pick him up, and, and do all this good stuff. And we felt it was time to, you know, kind of peek in to make sure he wasn't strangled in the crib or something, but, and make sure he wasn't terribly blue. But other than that, to, to uh, let him cry. And, um, and I remember that first night we decided to do that. We went to bed, both agreeing that we'd let the boy sleep for the night, do whatever he wanted to do, cry if he wanted. And he began to cry, and we kind of sat there and said, laid in bed and said, nope, not going to get him. He kept crying, got louder, and my wife said, he's, he is crying loud. And I said, well, I'll, I'll go peek, make sure he's healthy, you know. And I kind of peeked in, and he was all right, just crying loud. And um, before the night was over, I literally was physically restrained my wife from going into the room. I mean, literally, just because I'm bigger, you know. I won that one because I'm stronger. I wouldn't let her go in. I just made a decision, decided she wasn't going to go in. And, I mean, she fought me. I mean, I was just kind of holding her. You're not going to do it. Great time for a marriage. Um, now, I'd like to suggest that, that, that um, from my son's perspective, we had abandoned him. But we really hadn't. If he really needed us, let me tell you, we'd have been there in a flash. From his definition of needing, we abandoned from our definition of needing, we didn't. Isn't that what God does? That's the point. You see, this is where the cross has to be central in our theology. You know, you look at the cross and what do you see? <clears throat> you know, if he's given up heaven's best, the notion of one who would not spare his own son, would not freely give us all things. And our response is, then do it. Then freely give us all things. And he's saying, I'll define that. Now I'm saying, no, I want to define it. It's Ultimately, it's control because we know what life is in our minds, you see. And we know what, what we're going to get. Uh, we know what, what, what life would really bring. Uh, I, I told my kids that, that I would buy them a whole lot more. I'd, I'd buy them a whole lot more you know, toys when they were little and bigger toys when they're bigger. Um, I could afford to give my kids more than what they have. That's just a fact. And then they sometimes say, then help me understand. <laughs> you know, Dad, can I have this? And I say, no. Dad, it costs 30 bucks. Can you afford it? Yes. Then it doesn't compute. Do you not love me? Yes, I love you. Then buy me the gift. No, I won't. Can you afford it? Yes, I can. And from their point of view, it doesn't make sense. Now, as, as a parent, it all makes sense to you, doesn't it? What's my problem in buying my kids everything I could possibly afford for them? Why do I not, not want to do that? Sure, the old good old phrase is going to spoil them to death, right? And so what I tell them is, guys, the reason I can't buy you all these things is because you're lousy sin nature. Get rid of that and I'll buy you everything. <laughs> because you're going to misunderstand life. You're going to misunderstand that life is really God. Now, when, when, when we get to heaven, what's going to happen? We're not going to have any problems with sin. What's God going to do? It's going to be Christmas for eternity. You understand? He's going to pull out all of his money and he's got a big bank account. He's just going to spend everything on me. It's not going to be a problem then. I'm not going to mishandle it. I'm not going to start appreciating all the goodies and forget about him because I won't have a tendency to misdefine life up there like I do down here. So therefore, he does withdraw because he wants me to find life. Now, you just, you just got to believe that. <laughs> and to believe that is repentance because we don't believe it. And the only way to really put roots to that belief is to look at the cross. 
probably the most meaningful doctrine to me, if you want to call it a doctrine, it certainly is a truth, in the past six months has been the phrase, God is good. Because he hasn't looked good to me a whole lot. Then either I'm right and he's not good, or he's right and my vision is blurred. And that's where I'm staking my future, that my vision's blurred. He's good. So, when he withdraws and doesn't give us all that we would like, it's got to somehow be an expression of his goodness in terms of giving all the toys to a kid that mishandles him and misses what life really is. See, I really believe that you know all things work together for good. That's not just a cliche, that's, that's actually a verse. And rather than kind of saying that in a, in a cliche sort of form, we have to be saying that all things work together for good, but what is good, and obviously what God defines as good, is the knowledge of himself. And therefore, what he's going to do is everything to draw us to himself. That's what we call blessings, whatever draws us to God. That's got to be what the word good has to mean. So because God does not fully relate to us now in the sense of giving us everything, because as sinners we're not going to be able to handle it, and because nobody else can be there for us, even though they, if in their poor wisdom they try to be, uh, they, they can't be. Therefore, we must be lonely. It's a necessary condition of the human experience. Post-Adam, pre-glory. All right? Now, just that fact, as I've kind of been teaching now for the last 20 minutes and lecturing on that, tell me what's been, what's been going on in your minds and hearts as you've been sitting there thinking, listening to me talk. Yeah. You already have a polarity there, don't you? On the one hand, if you, if you protect yourself from disappointment by not expecting God to give good things, then there's no faith in that. Then if you come to God expecting good things, and then it doesn't come. Yeah, and that's wrong, isn't it? Because we're told to consistently come before him the, uh, the, the parable of the person who came and consistently requested. We're told that's a model for what we should be doing. And you see why we don't do that? Thank your point, so well taken. Why is it so hard for us to continually implore God for something? It's a way of protecting ourselves from the disappointment when it doesn't come. So therefore, it's right to keep on approaching him. But as we do that, as you're well pointing out, as we consistently approach him, not demanding that something be different. Some of you are so lonely in your marriages right now. What are you doing about that? This man that I've mentioned before who has a really bad situation with his wife. She's a mess. I asked him just a week ago. I said, how often do you pray for her to change? He said, not much anymore. And he said, but you know, I still pray some. I still pray for my wife to change, but I think what's happened is I'm no longer relying on my wife changing. Now, for him to not pray at all for his wife to change, I'd have a problem with. For him to pray incessantly and make that the preoccupation of his prayer life, I'd have a problem with. But for him to rather pray, Lord, it would sure be nice to have a wife who, who wanted to hug me when I came home. It would sure be, have a nice, to, sure be nice to have a wife who was willing to make love to me. I haven't made love in years. It would sure be nice to have a wife who cared. 
Lord, that'd be super. But Lord, that's simply not something I'm going to demand, but you, you do know that's in my heart. <laughs> and, and I'll mention it now and then. And, and if you don't choose to give that to me, Lord, I'm going to somehow still risk calling you good. And on the basis of calling you good, I'm still going to be good to her. Don't retreat from spouse and moving to the Lord. Still move towards spouse or friends, whatever source of disappointment there is, still move without demand. Look at the function of loneliness, bad and good. And let me just finish up on a comment here. Before I say that, what other thoughts are in your mind as I've been talking here? Yeah. Well, what does finding a mean? Does that, can we exegete that verse to suggest that there will be the experienced fullness within my soul? Is that necessarily implied in the promise? Can we, can we extract that from it? I don't think we can. So therefore, finding, we need to be careful to define that, not, in, not necessarily in our terms. Now, it seems to me, understand, what is God's power devoted to now in the life of, of, of his church? What is he doing with, with his people who are already his? I'm persuaded that you know, nothing can separate me. There's Romans 8 and that, um, that he will complete the good work that he's begun, that I will be changed to resemble the Lord, to be just like the Lord and presented to the universe as a trophy of his grace. All that's there. So God's power is devoted to changing me. Therefore, when I seek him, I'm going to find in him whatever is required for me to change. What that might mean is God's not coming through in certain ways which I'd prefer, which requires the kind of maturity for me to continue. Um, James uh, 1, where it talks about welcome tri tribulations as, as friends, not calling them intruders, whatever, because uh, tribulation will have its perfect work. The whole image there is the image of a blast furnace. That's the actual wording that's used there. And the image is of a blast furnace where you put in a, where you put in a big piece of, piece of ore that has some gold in the middle, but it's surrounded by all kind of worthless, <coughs> worthless ore. And you put it in a blast furnace, and the picture is the Lord standing by the blast furnace controlling the heat. So that what comes down to the bottom is the gold. That's what remains at the bottom. And when I seek him, what he might do is turn up the fire. So uh, Lewis puts it that way. He says, Lord, you're, um, could you love me less? Because your relentless love, that's a phrase Lewis has, your relentless love is purifying me, and a lot of the time, that's not my goal. Yeah, I think that's right. When you're coming with a self-protective mentality, that really is going to block his movement towards you in ways that he wants. He has to do, he has to do things that seem contradictory to me in order to get to the point where I'm saying, I believe no matter what, there's life in you, and I'm going that's to right. go for it no matter what. That's faith. That's right. In order to remove those blocks to faith, he has to behave towards us in ways that doesn't, doesn't make any sense. It's like a, a parent spanking a young child. Has no comprehension. What are you hitting me for? You know, what is this? 
or the time my son, when he was little, had gassed his eye and he had to rush to the hospital and the emergency room was understaffed and I had to hold my son's head while the doctor stitched up the thing here. And my little kid's looking at me saying, what are you doing? You know, you're holding my head while the doctor's hurting me? You're a loving father, you make a lot of sense. Well, I knew what I was doing and I was being very loving. From his perspective, I was being mean. Because I wanted the kid to have a healthy head. And I know that's required to have some needles go through it. Sure it is. Wanting nothing. That's the idea. I shall not want. Psalm, the, 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 uh, Psalm 23. The whole idea of, of wanting nothing. I'm made perfect. Um, I've learned what it means to be patient and to persevere, which seems to be a real theme in that. Um, I'm able now to keep on going, demanding that nothing be different than it is in order for me to keep on going. Now, do I want other things? Of course. So define the term very carefully. But... Is there anything else that is required? Do I believe something else must happen to enable me to persevere? The answer is no, therefore I shall not want. But don't take that verse in a very simple-minded way. I shall not want. Everything is just the way I want it. That just isn't true down here, and there's no promise like that whatsoever. Be very careful on the whole issue of the promises of God. We did a Bible study in our little Bible study group a while ago on what it means that God has promised. And I tell you, I really believe. I read a letter from somebody recently who had um, been ill, and, um, and the illness went away. The doctor was able to see the source of it and had the medication to treat it, and it was a life-threatening illness. And the person is now fully recovered, and they quoted a verse about where God will heal their diseases and said, we claimed the promise, and now we're better. That's garbage. How about the person who died, who read the same verse? Let me tell you, the promises of God right now for me that I really claim is a promise that God's working with me, and he's going to complete his work, and I'm going to make it. That's his promise to me. And I'm resting in that. I have no promise that my wife's not going to leave me. I have no promise that my kids are going to turn out all right. Once you make that into a promise, my kids become a puppet, become puppets. I have no such promise. Train up a child, the way they'll go, he won't depart from it. That's a principle, not a promise. I want to submit to you. We have many principles in Scripture, not too many promises. is a vehicle, it isn't the final. The word is the vehicle for me to know God. These are written that you might know. Not know all the verses in the gospel so you can recite them to a Sunday school class. But these are written that you might know that he really is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you can have life in him. Yeah, you're right. I couldn't agree with you more. I find myself drawn to what you're talking about. Uh, the notion of a transcendent God and um, you know, what, what, really, what really is the function of Scripture? Isn't it to lead us to him? Is our comfort in the scripture? Well, be careful now. I can say yes and mean it. But I, what, I, what I want to say is that the scripture points me to the more of who the person of God is. I don't imagine we're going to have a whole lot of Bible studies in heaven. Maybe we will. I don't know. I'm not arguing that strongly. But we're going to have him. And that's what it's all about. The Bible's an arrow pointing us to 
not a deeper understanding of doctrines. We can impress each other with our defense of our eschatology, but our, our eschatology is supposed to point us to the hope. And we should have our positions and convictions. Some of you are priests, some of you are, some of you are posts, some of you couldn't care. But you all know he's coming, and that's kind of the essence of it. But still, you know, take your positions and defend them, and they're just not unimportant. I don't mean to put that down, but it's all an arrow. I hope some of you right now that are hurting are having your heart stirred by that. There, there really is that sort of thing available. I know a little tinge of it. She knows a little more of it than I do. And more of it than maybe some others do too as well. And I saw a hand. Yeah. Of uh, a couple of deer standing by a brook and the plaque on the bottom of Psalm 42, verse 1. The only thing is that in Psalm 42, the, the deer are panting after the water brooks and they never got it. That's what the psalm seems to be saying. He says, my soul thirsts for God, so loving God. When can I go and meet with my God? His friends say, or his enemies taunt him, where is your God? Finally, he says, why is this the last word? Why are you downcast on my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. Yeah. It's a future hope, isn't it? It really, really is. And some of the passages where the Lord talks about, I'm going to put streams of water through the desert. That's later. Depending on eschatology, it could be the millennium, but it's certainly going to be the eternal state. It's certainly going to be later. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.